Okay, welcome everybody. Spiritual Psychotherapy, Episode 7. Uh, I've been waiting a while for this one because I was in El Salvador, um, and it gave me a good hiatus, a good amount of time to think about certain ideas. And I have I actually originally named this Google Doc Tyrosine Musings because I took some L-Tyrosine a couple of weeks ago. And I was praying, and it just got a lot of interesting thoughts. So I said, let me just jot these down, see where it takes me. Um, but we'll start with a quote from Khalil Gibran. And Michael Tabelli actually recommended to me that I listen to or read some of Khalil Gibran's stuff. Started listening to the, the book, The Prophet, on Audible. But this is from his book called Fear. It is said that before entering the sea, a river trembles with fear. She looks back at the path she has traveled from the peaks of the mountains, the long winding road crossing forests and villages. And in front of her, she sees a, an ocean so vast that to enter there seems nothing more than to disappear forever. But there is no other way. The river cannot go back. Nobody can go back. To go back is impossible in existence. The river needs to take the risk of entering the ocean. Because only then will fear disappear. Because that's where the river will know. It's not about disappearing into the ocean, but of becoming the ocean. So it's amazing to me because the, the hotel where I stayed um, I was actually right at the beach, but you got to turn into this little inlet from the ocean and there's a river and you go down the river, you know, however many yards. And there you are at the hotel that I stayed at. And I was, this was one of the first times in my life where I was able to actually see where the river meets the sea. And this was just pretty profound for me spiritually. I don't know what it, you know, what it got going in my head, but I thought that was really cool. And you could tell when the river would overflow, it would continue forward right into that ocean. And um, I thought this quote from Khalil Gibran really captures that. And, um, you know, when when Alan Watts talks about be like water and the Tao is compared to water, it's it's such a common concept. Even in Judaism, we say the Torah is like water. It only comes to those people who are most humble because like water. Torah sinks to the lowest point, to the people who are dwelling at the lowest point. And uh, when water is flowing, it doesn't get neurotic. It doesn't think to itself, oh, my God, what if I can't flow this way? What if I'm only able to flow that way? And I'm not able to go around this rock. I can only go around that rock. Water doesn't do that. It just keeps flowing. It almost has this natural way of knowing of, like, just keep flowing and you'll find a way. And the wisdom of Taoism is to help us get back into the flow of nature to be more like water. And I think uh, it's interesting that so much of the, on Sukkot, a lot of the ceremonies are done with water. Um, and there's Simchat Bet HaShoeva, the happiness, the great exaltation of drawing forth the water uh, and putting it on the Mizbeach and and that ceremony, I think, is is very much about what Sukkot is all about, which is impermanence. Right, We're going into a temporary dwelling from a permanent dwelling. Water is always reminding us of this very, very liberating thing 
of impermanence. And some people might be wanting to cling to something in their life. So impermanence might be coming as a little bit of a shock. But if you really think about it, impermanence is the key towards making everything a lot less serious and making things flow much more easily. Uh, and in that same vein, the Buddha says, or it's attributed to the Buddha, as we know, you know, even later students who had insights and epiphanies, when they would state them, they would say the Buddha says, because they didn't see a difference between their consciousness and that of the Buddha. Of course, it's what the Buddha says. He says, nothing is, is permanent. Everything is subject to change. Being is always becoming. That's what being is. Being is becoming. They're, they're one and the same. So for for me, these types of ideas, you know, it's almost like you want to grab onto them, ironically. You, you want to cling to non-clinging. You want to be permanently in impermanence. That's... Bro. <laughs> Are you, is that the, that's the meme I love that one right. and the spirit of flow um, I don't know you tell me if you're attached to something if you're attached to people mm. you know that, that could be a really good thing uh, the fruits of life mm. absolutely and, and there's nothing wrong with that and it's part of the infinite Tao. It, it's all part of it. You cannot deviate in a way. At the point, it's always changing. It's yes. Coming. Yes. Moving. Even what you think of as, oh, a sin of clinging or a sin of aversion. That's not the way it really is. That's kind of what I'm getting from what you're saying. Hmm. Yeah. That's the way I hear it. But so. What is the Tao? Exactly? The, the, so <laughs> the Tao is, is. Obviously not really able to be put into words, but it's kind of the flow of everything. It's that force which is always permeating through everything. And it is the flow. It is what is. You can call it as our share of Yeah, exactly. That's the point. Exactly. You call it everything. You can call it. Yes. And it's the simplest thing. It's yeah. just it's just what is. And the, the, there's a great quote in the Tao Te Ching. They say, um, when the wise man hears about the Tao, he lives a li his life in accordance with it. When the foolish man hears about the Tao, he starts to laugh and mock it. Mm -hmm. If he didn't do that, it wouldn't be the Tao. It says this in the Tao Te Ching. If, he, if the foolish man didn't scorn the supposed simple, you know, obviousness of what the Tao is or like ridiculousness of people trying to put it to words, where the foolish man says, oh, that's stupid. You know, that's dumb, obviously. Or like, even not obviously, like you didn't, you didn't tell me anything. You're just saying Tao is Tao. The goal is for everyone you know? to not be foolish and be, live in the Tao and in the presence of the Tao. In a way, but at the same time, there is no goal. That's the key. Is that no, no amount of words that we exchange here will ever be able to be like, and then we've made it and that's it. You know what I mean? Like, it's never going to get to that point where we could really put it into words, but we can point to where words are limited and hope that from that, from that, you know, jumping point, it'll, it'll take off. You know what the translation means? Like in, uh, of Dao. Or Dao. Mm, that's a great, that's like, I read all of Alan Watts's book, you know, way? yeah. Dao, he calls it the, the water course way. Um, yeah, that's a great book. That makes sense. Yeah. The Dao, the way, um, 
but yeah, let me know if you find anything else. I'd be very curious. Um, yeah. So here's and now, you know, in, in, in light of this, um, you know, I've been, I, I spent a lot of my time in, in El Salvador really trying to be present with my experiences, surfing and whatever I was doing, walking along the beach. I find that listening to the music that I had liked on Spotify over the past few months and then now listening to it again and remembering what I was going through when I first liked that song, right? I feel like we could all, I was just talking to, my, to Judy D. Jamal about this on the phone like an hour ago, how profound this is. Like you can look back at your Spotify playlist and you can feel back into, wow, that's like a chapter in my life. You know, in Maine, I did the same thing and I had similar kind of experience, you know, staring at my my sneakers, in fact, the sneakers that carried me through two years of my life. And it's very interesting. And I find that music has a great way of doing that. And if you're um, really present, though, then it shouldn't even take you back. Mm, that's a great point. But but yeah, I guess the memories that okay are flowing. It's, 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 yeah. As long as, as, as long as it's in a positive way. I guess. Yeah. No, not. I mean, it brings just a bunch of emotions up, I guess. And it it, it kind of puts in perspective the memories that you have about a certain part of your life. But of course that's being integrated into the now moment of walking along the beach, you know? And I think that's the beauty of it is it's almost like a way of reframing things and, right. and putting it into a different perspective. It's also the danger of it. People that are traumatized from a certain song yeah. and they hear in the street mm -hmm. and just trip out. Absolutely. I feel like it's like clinging on, like he said, clinging on to relationships, mm -hmm. questioning like, Oh, should we not cling on to anything? What about all the, Great things I'm thinking. The memories of exactly yeah. attachment. Yeah. So I, I almost feel like it can't be binary, but I feel like it should be binary. Like wait, don't cling on to the negative and positive, just whatever clings go with the flow. Mm -hmm. The rest, you get what I'm saying? hundred percent. I, I think there's the that's the 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 funny part about about me even coming to speak here is that I'm the ultimate fool by even trying to do this because right. I present to you like like they say Zen is like a thief who steals your wallet and then tries it tries to sell it back to you that's kind of like what i'm trying to do here tonight is where i'm talking to you about something that you know so obviously and so imminently that my attempt to even sell it to you or give it to you is the ultimate joke yeah but i think most people aren't aware and they need to be stolen to and give it back so uh -huh. they can become aware so that's why it's not it's not so much out of malice but service but it's also foolish but yes. but right. as long as we're we're all we're all on the same page here about it, it but it's fun too we're talking about the action of doing things but yeah what's missing is the spirit of how you do something oh and for the sure of how you look at a past memory or a past song mm -hmm. matters it's if it's in the spirit of escape mm -hmm. moment it could be the spirit of many other negative things, even positive things that mm. create the cycle of negative. Yeah. So if you're pursuing pleasure from a good memory, you're going to feel aversion or fear towards not having that you know, inevitably. So Certainly. That's the, that's the danger I think we're yeah. trying to point out. Yeah. For sure. So now I have a couple of stories that um, I dug up. One of them I heard recently when I heard a few years ago and they really, you know, resonate with me um, because I feel like, maybe we don't talk enough about this aspect of the spiritual journey. So here it is. A monk was meditating in the desert when a beggar came up to him and said, I need to eat. The monk, who was almost reaching the point of perfect harmony with the spiritual world, did not answer. I need to eat, insisted the beggar. 
Go to the town and ask someone else. Can't you see that you're bothering me? I'm trying to communicate with the angels. And the beggar turned into an angel. What a pity. You almost made it, he remarked before leaving. That's a story from, from Paolo Cello. And uh, I think that very much encapsulates the, the joke of it all, of any attempt at seeking something beyond that which is already, in the attempt to gain some type of divine something, is automatically not the Tao, in a sense. Even though it is the Tao, because everything is the Tao, but that's automatically not the divinity that we're looking for. And you see how my words, I'm even struggling to put that into words, because, but you get the point. It's an inaccurate part of your consciousness. It's exactly. Not on the Tao, but it's, it's wrong. Exactly. It's, it's, trying to, it's something trying to overcome itself. It's trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Um, and I think this is the, the wisdom of with whatever is presented before you, use that and be with that as ultimate perfection of this moment and of the Tao and of whatever you want to call it. Um, the next story is, I think, in a very similar vein. A devotee, after years of practice, knelt before the master to be initiated finally as a disciple. And the master whispered the last sacred mantra in his ear, warning him not to reveal it to anyone. So, Joe, we just started another story. There's a devotee who's about to be finally initiated as a disciple, and the master tells him, I'm going to reveal to you this, this mantra, but don't tell it to anyone. But what, what will happen if I do? Asked the student. Said the master, anyone to whom you reveal the sacred mantra will be liberated from the bondage of ignorance and suffering. But if you betray the secret, you yourself will be excluded from being a disciple and instead suffer damnation. No sooner had he heard these words than the disciple rushed to the marketplace, collected as large a crowd as he could around him, and repeated the sacred mantra for all to hear. The other disciples reported this back to the teacher and demanded that he, that he be expelled from the monastery for his disobedience. And the master smiled and said, He has no need of anything in the monastery anymore, or anything that I could offer. His actions have shown him to be a true teacher in his own right. So I love this because the, the test of it almost that the, the master was putting this disciple through is this trap of ego. And what is ego fundamentally? It's this thought that you and I are separate. It's this, this delusion, which is what is taught to us by these people, it's, in fact, a total delusion that my lifetime is a separate entity from your lifetime. My conception of myself as an individual is fundamentally separate from your conception of yourself as an individual. And that delusion is something that needs to be overcome in order to really be a true monk. So in telling this student of his, this is almost your, your final test 
by showing that he has no regard for himself as a separate individual, if that means it's going to be at the expense of everyone else. It's that ability that reveals that this person is already a, a true teacher and is already a true monk. I really like that. Um, here are some of the thoughts that I that I had written down um, when I after I took that L tyrosine. So just to give some people, uh, you know, so they don't think too crazy of me, L tyrosine is just an amino acid precursor of dopamine, norepinephrine. I like to take it before I work out sometimes, before I need to focus on stuff. Once in a while, you know, I wouldn't take it more than once or twice a week, more than 500 to 1,000 milligrams. It's just a totally legal over-the-counter Amazon supplement. Please don't tell your children to be afraid of me. Um, so <laughs> here are some of the thoughts that I wrote down uh, while tripping on L-tyrosine. Um, <laughs> I wrote here, the ego simply wants to worship God. I, You know... When I wrote this down, I was I was praying and I was really feeling good. And that that epiphany for me was so obvious. I don't know why. In that moment, it was pretty obvious of like the ego just wants to worship God. And it's almost like my the ego itself begging for compassion from God of don't kill me. Don't consume me. It's the river going into the sea saying, I just want to worship you. And the, the, the funny thing is, if it's all one, then that oneness has nothing to love. You can't even call it love. Why not? And you can't call it worship because it's all one. The only way for love and worship and friendliness and connection to be is if we're still stuck in the realm of dualism. So I remember Ram Das talking about um, there's a certain type of yoga that is almost edging at that borderline between the dualism and the, and the oneness. Because we know the oneness is the ultimate bliss. But I'm so happy here in the dualism, in the love that it provides, and I know that there can only be this love if I'm still in this dualism. That please, God, I just, I have this need. I have this need to worship you. And to be honest, I think this is a, a part of being a human being. And one of my gripes with some of the, the very left-wing mentality, which I feel sometimes is negating some very fundamental human intuitions by scoffing at that which has traditionally been held sacred for many years. And when you scoff at that, you don't give credence to what all humans, I really think, have intuitively. One of those intuitions is there's a value in worship. There's a value in worshiping. And, and it's a very human need, being a human being. A, a chimpanzee who grew up as part of a troop, and you are wherever you are in that troop, and you evolve in such a way where the leader of that troop is so fundamental to your existence that you love that leader and you owe obedience to that human leader or that chimpanzee leader that we project that human need onto reality and existence itself. And we call that God the king or God the master or God the teacher. 
And you might say, okay, I, I know it's just an ego projection. And if you know it's just an ego projection, okay, then it doesn't make sense to, to do that. That's what you might think. But in reality, that's not true. Re in reality, being a religious person or being a, a, a Zen person doesn't mean saying, oh, it must be this, only this, and therefore let me not go according to it. No. Let me embrace all of what it means to be a human being. And living a life of service is a way of doing that. But the real key that I that I am starting to realize, and I think we quoted uh, a couple of weeks ago, a beautiful quote, I think, from uh, Kabir. He says, since that time, there is no end to the sport of our love. Since the time that God opened my heart, I see that whatever I'm doing is my worship of God. And if you can realize that, that anything you're doing and whatever you're doing in your daily life, from the most mundane thing to the most beautiful thing, it's all a form of worship of God. And you're going to start thinking like I do about all the evils that are done, the murders and the rapes and the kidnappings and the, the most terrible things out there. You say, how could that be worship? My answer is, I don't know. And I can't put it into words, but somehow once the dualism goes into the oneness, it reveals itself to all be part of that. But in the meantime, we can embrace this idea of my ego just wants to worship God. And the best way to do that is just to be present. Just to be present right here, right now with whatever we're doing. My next thought on El Tarazin, make peace with the evil inside yourself and you will naturally do good. You might think, oh, I need to fight the evil within me. And only if I fight against the evil within me will I do goodness. And the answer is no, no, no. That's not true. The real truth is, once you learn to laugh alongside the shadow within yourself, then you'll really be able to naturally do good. You'll be able to naturally flow with whatever nature is bringing before you. And I wrote down here comedy because I think that's a huge part of it is that a guy like Louis C.K. does that for me tremendously. I go for these long walks on the boardwalk. You know, we did that a couple of times and someone I do it by myself, I'm listening to Louis C.K. and he's allowing me to notice, no matter how crazy anything I could ever think or feel, he's thought and felt that stuff to such a degree that he can make me laugh my butt off about it because he's the master at that. And I think that's why comedy is so valuable because it allows you to let go of uh, any type of guilt for just a transient thought or feeling that we all share. Um, the, next, <laughs> the next thing I wrote here, is Ram, Ram, Ram. Now, <laughs> this is a story from Ram Das uh, that I really love. Uh, so as you all know, Richard Alpert, the, the college professor in Harvard, him and Tim Leary, Timothy Leary, they both got expelled from Harvard for the psychedelic trials that they had done in the 60s. Um, Ram Das moved to India, met his guru, Maharaji, beloved one. And he took on the name Ram Das, servant of Ram. And he has many, many stories. And you're going to think I'm a little crazy, but I, I, I'll i admit this. I read a book called Miracle of Love. 
uh, a book that is written by Baruch Habara ID and, and Dr. Nasser. I know you've been here. I'm sorry I didn't welcome you earlier. Good to see you guys as always. Um, so Ramdas tells the story that uh, his his guru, his teacher Maharaji, before he died. So, so I read a bunch of these stories in a book called Miracle of Love. It's almost like the same way that the Hasidim have tales about like Rabbi Nachman or whatever. There's these stories about Maharaji, and I, you know, I He's just my guy. Watch what you say, Mike. Yeah, who's your guy? Which guy? Ramdas? Rabbi Nachman. Oh, Rabbi Nachman. No, no, no. Nothing bad about him. <laughs> Only good things. He's major, major, major. <laughs> I, I love his stuff, by the way, too. I, if I got you read Crossing the Narrow Bridge. I have to read it. Remind me. Remind me later. He's the guy. He's the hit boy there, dude. I love it. So, so one of these stories about, about Maharaji, about Ramdas, his guru, is before he died, he picked one of his disciples, a woman, and he told her, uh, he said, I, I'm entrusting my journal to you. And this was like so coveted by everyone. You can imagine the guru who was said to perform whatever miracles and whatever they believed about him. He's going to entrust his personal journal to this woman student. And... Maharaji dies. They wait a little bit of time, the morning, whatever they're doing. Finally, she opens up the journal. And on every page, over and over again, all it says is Ram, 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 Ram. You know, I love this story because that, as Ram Das says, that's all there is to think about. That's all there is to say. When you are that connected, every moment is Ram, Ram. Ram being the Almighty God that in, in the in the words of the Hindus. Don't get caught up in the name that they give versus Yatkivat, whatever it is. So for me, that that just brings me a lot of happiness. <laughs> just that story, you know, it's something you feel with your heart. The next thing I wrote down here is Pinocchio. I wrote that actually more recently when I went to uh El Salvador, and you know, I I'd like to talk to you at length about Pinocchio, and maybe we'll do a little bit more about about Pinocchio. Uh, but I'll tell you briefly why I was so enamored, and even to the point of almost crying. You know, just the story of Pinocchio. If you've ever seen the movie, I remember even years ago when when I was at my grandma's house, I was reading. Uh, you know, we found in my grandma's house one of these books, uh, like for kids, and I took my little niece Shelly, and we I started reading her Pinocchio, and I couldn't stop myself from becoming tearful and i'm i i never really understood why and now i started listening to jordan peterson talk because peterson's awesome because he can take a fairy tale and he will analyze the details from a psychological perspective and make you realize something so beautiful about this story but in the in the movie pinocchio and in this you know the classic disney story of pinocchio um, of course, Geppetto is uh, an Italian um, doll maker, toy maker, and he he builds little Pinocchio one night, and uh, you know one day, and he and he's all alone, and he and he wishes that he could have a son. He wishes upon a star, and that little doll miraculously becomes animated. It's not a real boy, but it's an animated doll. And it and it's talking and he's they're happy and they're dancing and whatever goes on and 
Pinocchio goes on this journey. And uh, at some point, you know, I have to watch the movie myself. But at some point during this journey, Pinocchio gets involved in the wrong crowd. He gets involved with a guy named Lampwick. What's so interesting about Lampwick is that it's right. What is the Lampwick? It's it's the part of the lamp that brings light like Lucifer. There's a lot of Christian images here. Lucifer is like Luce in Spanish, the one who brings light. So you might think it's, oh, it's all light. It's all good. And this guy's bringing, eventually, lands Pinocchio on Pleasure Island. But but what Pinocchio doesn't know is that indulging in the pleasures of Pleasure Island makes him grow the ears of a donkey. And he starts to bray like a donkey. Because quite literally, he becomes a jackass. Because that's what happens when you pursue just the pleasures of life and nothing more. You become a jackass. And Pinocchio becomes a jackass. And uh, eventually, he hears... That his father, uh, who I think went to look for him, is now drowned at sea or was swallowed by a whale, similar to Yonah. And um, Pinocchio goes on this heroic journey to go save his father. And by the way, this whole time, who is Pinocchio accompanied by? Pinocchio, you know that little cricket? Anybody remember the name of the cricket? Jiminy. Jiminy Cricket, exactly. If you know, where, where does Jiminy Cricket come from? So... And if you've ever been to the South, uh, you'll know that when people want to curse, instead of saying Jesus Christ, what do they say? They say Jiminy Cricket. Mm. Happens to be the same initials. Jiminy Cricket is the the logos. It's the it's the logos. It's the it's the um the part of Pinocchio's psyche that is his conscience. And it's always there, accompanying him along the way. Sometimes it's lagging behind. But it's always there. And Pinocchio goes on this heroic journey to go save his father. And his father, you, you see in the movie, he's stuck in the belly of this whale. And you know what? He's saying, I need to make the best of a bad situation. He's sitting in a boat in the whale. And he's fishing. Him and the cat and the goldfish are still there. And they're fishing. And he's like, you know what? Even though I'm, I can't I have no way of escaping, I tried everything. I'm just going to keep fishing. And by the way, fish is a very associated Christian symbol with with Jesus. Um, And he's fishing and he's fishing and he's, you know, he's not really catching much, but he's trying. And eventually, Pinocchio is able to somehow get inside the whale. And he gets inside the whale and Geppetto is there fishing and he fishes up Pinocchio. And he doesn't even notice. And Pinocchio is, is saying, Father, Father. And he and he's saying, not now, Pinocchio, I need to fish. And then he says, oh, Pinocchio, oh, my God, you're here, Pinocchio, Pinocchio. And he's all happy. And he says, all right, Pinocchio, now we need to keep fishing. And Pinocchio says, no, what, what, we can't just keep fishing. We need to solve how to get out of here. So what's going on here? This is a huge archetype. You have the father who is stuck in his ways, who is important, right? Tradition and father and the old ways are important. But sometimes they reach a point where they're stuck. They reach a point where the traditional values are not equipped to solve the problems of today. So you have Geppetto sitting in the, the belly of the whale saying, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to settle for just fishing here. I'm just going to keep fishing. And Pinocchio is like, Dad, we, we can't just keep doing this. We need to figure something out. And he says, no, Pinocchio, now that you're here, it's great. We'll, we'll, we'll get a fire going. We'll cook up some good fish. 
And Pinocchio goes, that's it, that's it. We'll start a fire, a big fire, a big, big fire. And Geppetto says, yes, yes, Pinocchio, a big fire. Um, by the way, when he was fishing, he he uh, and he he finally saw that it was Pinocchio. He went to hug Pinocchio, but he accidentally hugs a fish. Again, this is like the the symbolism of Jesus as a fish and Pinocchio acting a little bit kind of like Jesus here, um, in the sense that he's now trying to rescue his father. If you think about who is Jesus traditionally, that's almost what Jesus has become. Um, again, I'm not I'm not trying to convert anybody to Christianity. Please don't kill me. Don't crucify me. Yeah, say it again. <laughs> no, you, you, you could put the twist that you're giving different views. Exactly. That's the proviso. I'm not I'm not saying Jews for right, Jesus. Right. I'm just giving you symbolic. That's, that, that's 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 a disclaimer. Exactly. That's my disclaimer. So, so I'll finish the story quickly. Mikey, I'm always protecting you. Don't worry. I love you. Idea. As long as you're in my corner, no one's gonna put me in hiding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just wanted you mentioned I was cracking up. You mentioned the fish. There's a fish in Judaism. Like Saturday night, you eat the fish. Yes. It's supposed to be like there's a thing there that knocks it out if they're coming to get us. They say anyone who eats a dog, which is Dalit and Gimal is seven, right. you eat on the seventh day, you eat on Shabbat, it's supposed to be some kind of good omen. Right. It's like a heebie-jeebie if yes. they come to get us, no? Yeah. I, I never heard that part, but yeah, 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 yeah. I heard that from my rabbi that, that when they when, when they come right, to get us, you eat the fish, it bangs them out. Yeah. All right. I'm in, baby. I'm coming over on Shabbat. No, but it's interesting that a lot of the th the theories or the models that you show, whether yes. it's whether it's Buddha or it's whatever it may be, another another avenue of uh, religion. Yes, you know, there, there's so much. There's so much um, inter interface. So, they yeah. all let's say that the, I like to use the word. They all rhyme. In other mm. words, it's interesting, you know. But do they all come all from your side or their side? Who cherry picked who? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a good question. I think we had it first. <laughs> but but so I'll so I'll finish the story briefly, but very good points. Um, so Pinocchio says, Well, we're gonna start a big fire. And Gebetto says, Yes, yeah, yes, Pinocchio, we'll start a fire, we'll we'll cook the fish. And Pinocchio starts taking all the firewood and he takes a chair, he breaks the chair. Gebetto says, What are you doing, Pinocchio? He says, We're making a big fire, a big fire. So that and he's and he finally explains it to his father so that now the 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 smoke will burn within the belly of the whale and he'll have to sneeze and he'll sneeze us out. And sure enough, the whale fills with smoke, gets really angry, and he sneezes them out. And miraculously, they're all shot out the, the mouth of the whale, even though Geppetto had said there's no way out. It's all every time it opens its mouth, it's only to suck in fish, it's not gonna work. Pinocchio being the young new, you know, son of the tradition is figuring out that which his father could not figure out, the solution to getting out. Unfortunately, the the whale becomes like a fire-breathing dragon at this point. It becomes like this classical image of a dragon, and that's why, you know, so many different mythologies have this idea of the dragon that needs to be slain by the hero, and what does a dragon always have inside of it? it has gold, you know. That's a, that's another thing. Um, you know, there's there's something that's being protected within this huge leap of if you overcome this, then you will get the gold. Um, very common, you know, image. And Pinocchio and his father now are are paddling away as fast as they can, as fast as they can, 
and the the whale is about to swallow them up and it shoots them through a little crevice in a rock. And by the way, that reminds me of Moshe Rabbeinu getting a little glimpse of God through a crevice in a rock. That's what it reminded me of. And you see who washes up? Geppetto had already drowned. He already had died, but now Geppetto is saved. He's coughing up water. He's on the side. Then washes up the little fish in the fish tank. The the um, the cat washes up. Jiminy Cricket washes up. Who didn't wash up Pinocchio? And they see Pinocchio's face down in the water dead. And it's very sad. Pinocchio dies trying to save his father. But the movie obviously doesn't stop there. Pinocchio, they take his, his dead body of this, this little doll to back to Geppetto's house. And Geppetto is back where he was wishing upon a star in the beginning of the story. And Geppetto is hysterically crying at the foot of the bed of Pinocchio. And he says, oh, Pinocchio, oh, Pinocchio. And he's, he's crying over and over again. And then all of a sudden you hear the same voice from the beginning of the movie that said, if you are able to be brave and courageous, then you will be a real boy. And all of a sudden, boom, the doll animates, but this time not into only a doll. Now it's a real boy. And Pinocchio looks at his hands. He says, oh, my God, father, father, I'm alive, I'm alive. And again, he says, not now, Pinocchio. And he says, Pinocchio, and he says, father, why are you crying? He says, because you died, Pinocchio, because you're dead. He says, no, but dad, I'm alive, I'm alive. And then he realizes and they dance. And and then Jiminy Cricket outside, it cuts to him. And you see, he almost earns his wings as his, as the conscience. It says, you know, uh, something like, uh, you know, perfect uh, conscience of the year award kind of thing. A little golden mandala uh, medal on his chest. And, and it, it shines the light, it reflects the light of the star upon which Geppetto had wished. And the movie ends. Now, why did I decide to talk to you about Pinocchio? I think this is so important because we everything we've spoken about until now and in a lot of these classes, we talk about just being present in the now and don't get lost in the story. But I want to also say that it's very important to have good stories. It's very important to belong to a tradition in which the stories are good because at the same time the stories do matter what do i mean by that i mean we wouldn't have the luxury of sitting here right now in shul and discussing these ideas if not for these archetypes if it if not for the fact that society was built on this idea we would not be able to talk about this right. we wouldn't be able to be sitting here in a warm building if not for the patriarchy that built these roads. And I think there's a value in that. And you could, you could, you know, scream from today till Sunday about all the, the ways that the patriarchy is lacking and all the injustices that it's done. But don't contradict the importance of the patriarchy. So now let me bring it back to the Torah. So, you know, a few years ago, I'll never forget this. Was the, I think this was like the first class I ever gave in Sephardic on a Tuesday night a few years ago. And my friend Ike Tobias was sitting in the class. Parashat Lech Lecha. And we're, we're learning Lech Lecha, and there's this curious thing that happens in the beginning of Lech Lecha. Abraham Avinu is setting out on his journey, and it says the words, Vayetzeu lalechet arza kenan, vayabohu arza kenan. 
They set out to go to the land of Canaan, and they got to the land of Canaan. Isn't that a little bit redundant? Or as my brother Joe would joke, isn't that redundant and repetitive? So, <laughs> so <laughs> I love when he does that. So, right, usually the Torah would just say, that's a Canaan. Or it would just say, it wouldn't emphasize it twice. Now, the question is, why does it do that? Well, if you look in the prior parasha, in the end of Bereshit, right, which is literally the, the paragraph before this story in Lech Lecha, it says about Terach, the father of Abraham, or Avram at the time. Terach, it says, the exact same phrase, they set out to go to the land of Canaan, to the promised land, but they didn't get to Canaan. They settled in Haran. So why is this important? Well, what happens? Terach, unfortunately, never makes it to Canaan. He dies in Haran. And then we read the next week, the next paragraph, which is, It seems, okay, now that your father's dead, he died, he started this journey, you got to continue the journey that your father started and go to the promised land. Now, okay, fine, beautiful, sounds great. What do we all learn in elementary school about Terah? We all learn Terah, the father of Avram, he had all these idols. And one day, Avram figured out there's only one real God by contemplating the sun or something. And he takes a, st a staff and he decides to shatter all of his father's idols. Literally the iconoclast, the quintessential iconoclast who was Avram. Shatters his fa father's idols. The, his father comes back. How, you know, how could you do this? That it wasn't me. It was that idol. You know, he put the... The stick in the idol's hands. And he says it wasn't. He says, the idol can't do that. He's like, then why do you worship it? And that's the ultimate, like, in your face, dad. You know, you shouldn't be like that, dad. That's what the Midrash is kind of having. So what is the Midrash picking up? Why is the Midrash saying Abraham is being so radical? You look in the text. It's the exact opposite. He died. He couldn't make it to the promised land. Well, if not for Ike Tobias, I wouldn't know the answer to this. You look at the ages of Avram and Terah in the Torah. It's black and white, Peshat. I believe Terah was 100 or 105, you could correct me on this, when he, when he gave birth to Avram. How old was Avram when he set out? Avram leaving the place where his father died, Avram was 75. We know from earlier in the Torah, right before that, Terah was, how old when he died? 205. If Terah was 205 when he died, Avram was 75 when he left, and Terah had Avram when he was 105, Terah was 180, and was still alive when Avram set on in this journey. So even though the Torah mentions the death of Terah before Avram's setting out, that's not really what happened. Really what happened was, Terach settled down. He built a house in Deal. He built a house in Brooklyn. He said, Hajj, I'm not moving out of here. I'm not going to Israel. But Avram said, I'm going. He says, Dad, I love you. And I know this was your goal. You wanted to go to Canaan. Dad, you know what? I got to be Pinocchio now. I got to light the fire in the belly of chaos. In the belly of the whale that is chaos. 
and I got to spur myself to go to Canaan. And in doing so, I am saving you, Dad. I am the legacy of you, Dad. And what does this mean about progress? It means that progress is not blind, deaf, and dumb to tradition. Rather, progress is using tradition to guide its further movement. That's who Avram was. Avram was the manifestation of progress, being guided by the journey of his father by tradition. And that's exactly who Pinocchio was as well. Because the, the story of Pinocchio is saying, who do you have to save? Who is your responsibility towards? You might say, well, as Jordan Peterson said, well, maybe it's just to myself. Maybe my responsibility, first and foremost, I got to save me. But this, the hero story is not just that. The hero story is no. Your responsibility is to save your father too. And I think that's the beauty. That's the beauty of the story. And this is who we are as Jews. Also learning Zen on a Tuesday night. This is who we are. We're carrying the traditions of our fathers, but we're using it to guide the small incremental progress. And we're saying, Dad, I know this is exactly how you would want it. And I, I want to carry that forward while you're not even here to, to help me with this. So I thought that's really a, a beautiful, beautiful story. And I'd like, you know, in the future, maybe to discuss some more fairy tales. <laughs> because I think they're they're really valuable and really beautiful. So we'll pause a second before we do some Zoidia. Yeah, let's let's yes, yes, I did. Mike, because I jumped in late. Did you just snapshot the comedy part for me? Sure. So comedy, the reason I put that in there is be is because of this thing. Make peace with the evil inside yourself, and you will naturally do good. And the reason that that I, I think comedy is so important, and I mentioned Louis C.K. If you ever listen to the comedy of Louis C.K., he's one of the darkest of all the comedians. Right. But my friends and I, we are huge fans of Louis C.K. Um, because of the very fact of how dark he is, and he's also hilarious. Um, you know, and 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 I think the reason it's so hilarious is partially because of the tremendous relief. Of hearing, wow, there's somebody who's willing to say all these crazy dark things, and I'm not alone in the evil that exists within me. And you know, we 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 spoke a couple of weeks ago about about uh, Yaakov Avinu fighting with the angel. Who is this angel? It's really himself in a way, and it represents the darkness that exists within you, that part of yourself that you're struggling with because it's evil. Right. There's evil that existed within all of us, but the comedy, I think, is a huge way of, you know, getting past that, of, of realizing there is no fight at all. It's really just hilarious. And you, you comedy is a way of embracing the dark thoughts that we have, you know, like, like, screw this, screw this person. You know, I don't want to do, you know, whatever the comedy is, it's an honest take on some of the, the the negative thoughts that we might have about people and, and situations, it might be judgmental. Gives voice to the shadow. Right. Gives voice to the shadow. And also, in, in war, it's very very common for there to be a lot of dark humor. They'll make the most horrible. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't even imagine. Yo, this guy was in the idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they they say they say that the great the great. I've read books about the great comedy writers like Neil Simon, Sid Caesar, Mel Brooks. Yeah, and Woody Allen goes, and and their comedy is from their crisis or their tragedy, uh, yes. what they're dealing with, you know, their inner peace, you know. 
Absolutely. And and there's there's a, a tremendous beauty in in that. And and I would go so far as to say the experience of the dualism going into the oneness when you're when the river of ID's life finally does flow into the ocean that is the Tao or Hashem or whatever you want to call it. There's a comedy that is so beyond anything hilarious that you can even conceive of. The fear that you had, that you would cease to be, the fear of death that lies at the core of all fears that all humans ever can have, which is what I really believe is that the fear of death is the fear of fears. That fear is overcome in spades. And once it's overcome, there is nothing more hilarious in the entire universe. Mm-hmm. In spades. Yeah, that's like a, like a, an expression, like the, in an epic fashion, you know? Great. So I'm going to save the rest of this part for, for next week. Um, we can now do some Zohar, just so we can say we did a little bit more Jewish stuff here so that they don't, uh, you know, when they listen to this podcast and for posterity, they don't have to scorn the memory of Michael Franco. Um, see, that's me. My attempt at using humor to to cover up the anxiety that some people in the community will find out about what we talk about here in Sephardic on Tuesday nights and throw me in excommunication. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the beauty is nobody gives a damn about this podcast. Baruch Hashem. By the way, that's the relief of psychosis right there. The psychotic is paranoid. Oh, oh my God! They're all the FBI. They all care about me. They all. Nobody gives a damn about you. That's the reality. <laughs> that is the best feeling in the world. It's not worrying how much people think about you if you realize how seldom they do. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's exactly it. Exactly. And I wish I could teach this to, to anybody that I encounter that's going through paranoia because it's such a relief that nobody gives a damn about you. And that's great because they're all self-absorbed like we all are. Great. So... We left off in the Zohar last time about uh, this this very beautiful story um, with the donkey driver. So we have, you know how today we have the Uber driver is always, you know, very often a, a, an Arabic person. Um, and here in the in the Zohar, uh, they have these two big rabbis. Um, I think it was uh, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Abba. Rabbi Azar and Rabbi Abba were, were on, uh, being driven by this donkey goader. And they were having a very, you know very high level uh, spiritual conversation and sure enough this taya'a this arab caravaner starts giving them haydushim and challenging their spiritual conversation and they were so moved and so amazed by his words that they started to cry and they kissed him and now and they kept asking him what's your name what's your name and he was being very cagey about it and now the conversation continues and we start to see who really is this Arab caravaner that was taking these two rabbis along the way. And I, I think that these are very psychedelic visions in the Zohar, if I may say. <laughs> that might really piss people off. <laughs> Just take, take that. This is a kindred, exactly, of the last of two weeks ago. Okay, they said to him, so first they both wept together, kissed him, and went on. They said to him, if it pleases our master... Let him reveal his name to us. He opened saying, Benayahu ben Yehoyada. That was his answer. Uh, Benayahu ben Yehoyada is a pasuk, is in, in a pasuk in uh, Shemuel Bet, Perek Kav Gimel. Um, and it says, 
Benayahu Ben Yehoyada, Ben Ishchai, and I believe the Ben Ishchai wrote a book called Benayahu and wrote another book called Ben Yehoyada, because the Ben Ishchai believed that he was a reincarnation of Benayahu Ben Yehoyada. Um, and what does the verse say? Ben Ishchai, abounding in deeds from Kavtseel, he smote the two Ariel of Moab. He went down and slew the lion within the pit on a snowy day. The donkey driver begins to answer the question of his identity with a verse about Benayahu, a loyal follower of King David, one of the heroes mentioned in Shemuel Bet. Hmm. Right, so very interesting and very uh, cryptic answer about his identity. This verse has been established, which is fine, but these this verse alludes to supernal mysteries of Torah. Benayahu ben Yehoyada appears on behalf of a mystery of wisdom, a concealed word, and the name prevails. Son of a living man, Sadiq, righteous one, vitality of the worlds, master of deeds, master of all action, of all celestial powers. It starts to go on and on. For all emerge from him. He is Adonai Sevaot, Lord of hosts, insignia of all his hosts. Distinguished and supreme, he is called the master of deeds. So all of a sudden, he starts talking. They ask him, yo, bro, what's your name? And he starts talking about God. And he starts talking about this guy, Ben Ayal, Ben Yehoyada, um, and, and Sadiq. So this idea of Sadiq, the name Ben Ayahu indicates Yesod. Yesod being the corresponding divine phallus of among the Sefirot. And what is Yesod? Yesod, who is Ben, son of Yahu? Yod, He, and Vav, the three letters symbolizing Chokmah, Bina, and Tiferet. So he's speaking cryptically to try to say, I am the son of God, in a way. I am the son of Chokmah, Bina, and Tiferet, who gave birth to me. And Yesod is also known as vitality of the worlds, animates, right, it animates all of existence. Yesod, this divine phallus, right, Sadiq, Yesod, Olam, Yosef is identified as Sadiq, Yesod being the foundation is um, and it's funny because the Gemara says the, the phallus is the peacemaker of the home. Do with that what you will. Uh, on various senses of this title, see above. Uh, okay, so master of deeds. The donkey driver interprets the biblical word Rav as master. Uh, bottom line here, he's, he's trying to express some idea about I'm not just a person who you think I might be. And it, this is probably some kind of vision that they're both having together somehow. Um, from Kavtseel, he says, where am I from? I'm from this place called Kavtseel, this grand and dignified tree. I'm really from this tree, supreme above all. From which site did it emerge? From which rung did it come? The verse goes on to say, from Kavtseel, a high concealed rung that no eye has seen. No eye has seen except for you, God. A rung containing all, gathered in from upper light and from which all emerges. It is the holy hidden place in which all rungs are gathered and concealed. In the trunk of this tree, all worlds exist. From it, all holy powers are nourished and deployed. I love this. Because if you've ever seen like Attack on Titan, when he gets to the gates of whatever divine existence it is, and he sees like the Sefirot. And, you know, to me, this is like the equivalent image here. You get up to that, the gates of heaven and, you, you open the gates, and what do you see? You see this tree of life, the Etz HaChaim of Gan Eden, of the Garden of Eden. And he, this guy says, that's where I'm from. 
I'm from the trunk of this tree. And and what is it saying? Uh, this grand and dignified tree is actually a sword. It's a phallic symbol. It's often identified with the tree of life. Um, and the word kabtsa'il is like the word lekabetz. Lekabetz means to gather in. And and it, this is referring to bina. Bina is the feminine uh, attribute of, of one of the sefirot. And it gathers in the upper light of chokhmah. Right? So chokhmah impregnates bina. So he's basically saying, I'm from bina. That's where I'm coming from. And you don't realize it, but you also are from bina. So this angelic type of Arab caravaner is telling them, I'm answering this question of where am I from in the right way. And maybe this is the way that you need to start seeing the world as well. People ask you, who are you? Where are you from? Say, I'm ben Ayahu ben Yehoyada from Bina. That's the type of vibe he's given off. And this idea of no, no eye has seen. Rabbi Hayabir Abar Abbas said in the name of Rabbi Hanan, all the prophets prophesied only concerning the days of the Messiah. But as for the world that is coming, no eye has seen, O God, but you. All the prophets prophesied only concerning the masters of return. But as for the completely righteous, no eye has seen, O God, but you. Right. So the days of the Mashiach, or those who are totally righteous, they are seeing this thing that no one has ever seen. Even you know, only God has ever seen. Um, and and in the Zohar, it's referring to Bina, this this divine mother uh, of everything. Before everything is brought into physical or even spiritual existence, it's it exists within this motherly realm of Bina. In any given moment, while we're sitting here, you can think of it with what's called beginner's mind. You could think of it as this right now is the first moment of existence. Why think of time sequentially? Why think of it as there was before and then right now is the first moment? Where is this moment coming from? It's coming from Ain It's coming from I, I don't know what. God knows what. That's what that means. It's coming from the depths of nothingness, from Bina, from the divine mother of nothingness, from the Ain, from the nowhere. That's where this is coming from. That's where you and I right now are coming from. We're both emerging from there. Where do you live? I live in that tree of Bina. That's where I really live. But all of a sudden here we're manifesting together. So you and I to each other right now could be like the Arab caravaner as we speak here. Um, all right, so the Bina contains within herself and then gives birth to all of the lower sefirot as we know. Uh, so let's see. And from in this trunk of this tree, all the different worlds exist. All different potentialities of the whole multiverse. Anything you and I could conceive of. But this particular existence that we're in right now, in this particular universe of the multiverse, here is where we are right now. Boom. This is what Bina is bringing into existence in this moment. Um, and the, the, the verse continues about this man, Ben Ayah, Ben Yayada. He smote the two Ariel of Moab. Two sanctuaries existed because of him, were nourished by him, first and second temple. As soon as he departed, the flow flowing from above ceased. He, he as it were, smote them, destroying and obliterating them. And the holy throne fell, as it as is written. And I was in the midst of the exile. That rung called I was in the midst of the exile. Right. So it's saying the, the existence of the temples. That distant memory that we have of being, like I said earlier in the class, where the ego is just desiring to worship God. 
Imagine every day, you know, like your your great uncle told me, Ronnie Benin, the, the Mishkan image is so beautiful and so close to the heart because it wasn't just a place you go in once a year. The Navi, if he wanted, could live in that Mishkan. And the Mishkan really is a blueprint for meditation. Something I've tried that I'm telling you is so potent. If you imagine yourself walking through the doors of the Mishkan into the Holy of Holies and sitting there and meditating, and inviting in any, the Kohen Gadol, whoever it is, to meditate with you. And the Holy of Holies is there. And you you light the divine Ketoret. You light it there. And the smoke of the Ketoret mixes with the smoke of God's presence, of the Shekhinah, the lowest of the Sifirot. And there's the merging of the divine consciousness with your consciousness. Which we know happens on Yom Kippur, really to the fullest extent. But you can do it in any moment in your consciousness. So you're sitting there and you're walking through the doors of the Mishkan and this Kiruvim, this cherubs on each demarcation of holiness, this time inviting you back into the Garden of Eden. Like the, because the cherubs in Genesis were guarding the way to the Etzachayim, keeping you out. Now they're inviting you in, in this meditation and in the Mishkan itself. So what this is saying is, that when the when the temples got destroyed, this is something that happens in our in our psychology. When we have this fall from grace, when we're in a depression or anxiety, whatever's going on for us, or in a psychosis, this is the way we experience it. There's a, a cutoff of divine flow. And we we will we'll pause now um, because we're a little bit over time. Um, but I just want to leave you with this idea of how do we restore the flow? All you got to do is connect it. Just be present. And in, in the words of the Zohar, reconnect Shekhinah with Yesod and with Tiferet. And I think the, the simple way that we know of doing that is to allow the depression, the anxiety, the psychosis, whatever symptoms you're experiencing, we all go through to some degree. Once you let those pass, like the river, and we're going to talk next week about the river Kevar, the river that already happened, in the words of Red Kivar, means also already. When you allow that river just to flow, you come back and you rejoin the flow from Tiferet and you saw it down to Shekhinah. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen. Nice. Baruch, guys. Thanks, Mikey. It was great. Thank you so much. Love you guys. Have a great week. Have a great week, ID. Bye-bye. i see you, Mike. Peace. Bye, Thank you, Michael. Thank Take you, care, Doc. Guys. Always a pleasure. Be well. Take care.